We are in part three of our series on knowing peace. And we're doing, we're doing this all the way through the end of the year, looking at what does peace mean? What does peace mean, biblically speaking? What is the biblical definition of peace? And one of the things we looked at is that the biblical definition of peace is not uh, emotional tranquility. It's not this ah, feeling of just... Uh, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's the idea of everything being together, of completeness, of, of finishedness, of all together, this idea of peace. And that's what gives you then that feeling that things are good. So in the week one, we looked at, so if God has got a peace, why don't we have peace? And we looked at the fact that this is not a failure of God. It's not because God somehow isn't up to the job. It's the fact that God has offered peace and we have rejected peace and that mankind consistently rejects peace. And we'll look at that a little more today. Then last week, we looked at, again, the promise of peace and the fact that our tendency is to trust ourselves. We tend to trust ourselves, put our trust in ourselves, and that's why we don't have peace, because the avenue of peace is to trust in Him. And we saw the verse in Isaiah where it said, you will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed upon Him. And so that part of how we experience peace in a world that is not put together right now, in a world that isn't finished and isn't complete and is torn apart, we experience peace by trusting in His finished work. And that's why we can experience the peace that will come to everyone eventually, but we can experience it now. So that's kind of where we've been so far. Now, the Bible is God's story of His bringing together. You start right in Genesis where things are chaotic and the earth is without form and void and God begins to bring order and completeness. And that's why it keeps saying God saw that it was good and it was good and he finishes things and he puts everything together. And then the other part of the story is that then man keeps tearing it apart. And that's when you get to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve who had oneness and togetherness with God, then they sinned and now they are not together with each other and are not together with God. And then you get to Adam. Their, son, their sons, Cain and Abel, and they're really separated and torn apart where Cain murders Abel, and away you go. And so then the whole biblical narrative is God continually trying to pull together and bring together and heal and restore and bring together and mankind continuing to tear apart. And that's the story. And so then the center of the story is Jesus. Jesus is the center of the story where he comes to earth and he is going to reconcile, which what does that mean? Reconcile means to bring together, to bring peace. He's going to reconcile our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And that's the whole, the rest of the biblical story. And Jesus is the center of that. So, of course, we're coming into now the holiday season, and this is where we celebrate him coming to earth, initiating or completing this major work of his ministry of reconciliation, of bringing creation and people back together in right relationship with him. And Isaiah 9 oftentimes features in our Christmas stuff. If you know the musical The Messiah, there's a whole song based on Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon the shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. No, we got it. We should sing that now. Did we sing it one year? Don's not here. Don is here first service, I think. We sang. Oh, no, he's right there. Did we sing that in choir one year? Uh, yes. yes. See, I thought so, but time and memory, you know, that's a thing. But it's, it's, this is a key thing. And 
peace on earth, goodwill to men, and all that stuff. It gets quoted a lot. So what we're going to do this morning, the problem is, is again, we oftentimes take just verses 7 and 8, we lift them out of, uh, 6 and 7, we lift them out of context, we know those two verses, and we miss the larger story of the whole chapter. So we're going to spend the morning in Isaiah 9, starting in verses 1 through 7. Now, there's a story. This is a main story. They tell the story of a husband and wife who are from away. And they were driving up through western Maine. They stopped somewhere around West Paris because they got lost. And they went into the store there at West Paris. The husband went in and said to the storekeeper, Sir, my wife and I are from out of town. We're a little turned around. Where does the road up ahead go? And the storekeeper said, Penasiwasi. The guy said, how about the road to the left? He said, Whitlapitlik. He said, how about the road to the right? The guy said, Mooslet Maguntik. guy went back out to the car. His wife said, did you find out where we are? He said, nope. That man in there don't speak English. <laughs> now, most of you are from Maine, or at least have been around Maine enough that you... And especially if you're here in Western Maine, like we are, or you're a little more familiar, you've heard at least one of those names probably, and maybe you know all three. That's why the story's funny. If I told that story in Pennsylvania, they wouldn't laugh. They'd go, uh-huh. Because when he came out the punchline, they'd be like, right, he didn't. Why is that funny? Because you only know it's funny because you know that he wasn't speaking a foreign language. He was just giving the names of towns. When we read the Bible, that's oftentimes how it works. Because we do not know the context of the Bible, just like in Pennsylvania, they wouldn't know the context of Western Maine. And so then we read it, and we don't understand what we're reading. And so then what we do is we just breeze over parts that we don't understand. And then sometimes we decide, since we don't understand them, they must mean something. So then we assign meaning to it so that it's meaningful to us. This is the technical term for that is eisegesis, but you don't need to, that, that will not be on the quiz. All right. But then we go, oh, look, I found all this beautiful meaning. No, actually, what you did was you created your own meaning, and now you're not reading the scriptures, you're reading you, and you're using the scriptures to tell yourself what you want to hear. And that is not necessarily very helpful, because that's not how Bible study is supposed to work. So Isaiah 1, 1 through 7 has this, because in verse 1, it says, there will be no, mere, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he, will make it, he made it glorious. He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And most all that just goes, right? Because maybe we know enough Israeli history to know that, that Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the tribes of Israel, but we don't know those two tribes, so those don't mean anything to us. And then the way of the sea, the land of the Gentiles, came, we might recognize Galilee. Oh, Galilee, I, I've heard of that before. Sea of Galilee, but most of that means nothing. So as this whole passage is based on verse 1, we don't know what it means. So I'm going to help you out here with this, because I didn't either. That's why I study. That's what I do. So Zebulun after, I'm going to show you a map in a second. Zebulun after every tribe was given a territory. Zebulun Naphtali had adjoining territory up near the Sea of Galilee. There was a major trade route between Egypt that traveled along the, along the coast of the Mediterranean, up along the coast of Israel, and then all of a sudden it hung a right and hung a right and headed inland 
through towards the Sea of Galilee, up around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and kept going over to Assyria. So you have Assyria, big, big civilization, Egypt, big, long-time civilization, and this is a major trade route, and it was called, and we know this from other sources, not in the Bible, that this trade route was called the Way of the Sea, because it went by the Sea of Galilee. It was called the Way of the Sea. So historians lock in on this reference in Isaiah 9-1 because, wow, that's historically accurate. It shows that the Bible is historically accurate. Now, this trade route, of course, runs up to Assyria. Well, Assyria is in ascendance, and all through the book of Isaiah, Assyria is gaining power, and by the time that Isaiah is over, Isaiah has been prophesying that Assyria is going to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. And of course, for a long time, Israel is in denial that'll happen. God will never let another country capture us, even though God keeps telling, no, I'm going to let this happen. But Assyria, that, these things oftentimes happen in stages. So Assyria has already started to extend its borders. They're not conquering yet. They're just kind of annexing. And so they are, you want to control the trade route. So they have extended their borders down to include this territory around the way of the sea. And it's become an Assyrian province. This is when you get your map backwards. This is not helpful to you, right? Ah, here we go. All right, the blue, so this is Israel. You can sort of see the, I need a laser pointer. You can sort of see the, the, the Sea of Galilee here. And then the blue is Zebulun. And the orange is Naphtali. The orangey thread, the orangey line it comes up, it splits, one goes along the coast up to Tyre, the other goes inland under the purple, up through around the Sea of Galilee, and then off to the northeast, that's on the way to Assyria. So that's Naphtali and Zebulun. If I make it go away, you can see there's Capernaum on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. So that whole region is called Galilee. Now we've heard of Galilee because that's where Jesus hung out when he started his ministry. He operated in Galilee. And again, this was the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was the area that had become an Assyrian province, even though Israel was still a country. Israel hadn't been captured yet, but they were losing ground. That's the area, and that's the way of the sea. Turn over, don't lose Isaiah 9, but turn with me briefly to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 16. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who are sitting in darkness are a great light, and those who are setting, sitting in the land of shadow and death, upon them a light dawned. And so here, Matthew, when Jesus John the Baptist is arrested. This signals to Jesus, it's time to start. 
John's out of the picture. It's time for me to start my public ministry. And he begins his public ministry of declaring himself as the Messiah of Israel and of all mankind in that territory. And Matthew says, and the reason he starts there is because that's what Isaiah had said would happen, that those who were at the time of Isaiah already under darkness would see a great light. Now, see, that's way more. We tend to go, well, that is just people living in darkness in general. No, it was very specific that the people who have already, under, as Isaiah was writing this, who are already under foreign domination, who are already under the shadow of foreign domination and being controlled by another government, will see a great light. And then what is the promise that is made? Liberation. For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These are people who are under Assyria already. Even though their own government still stands, they've already been captured. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And so this is a hugely impactful prophecy and promise to the people living in that area. A promise of liberation, freedom from oppression, and good government. And so a lot of times we stop there. That's where the song stops. The song stops in verse 7. And so we stop there. The problem is, is that's not where Isaiah stopped. That's not where the story ends. And so now we need to read the rest of the chapter. Because the rest of the chapter says, so here's this promise. Oh, we're already under oppression already. We're, we're losing our rights and we're losing our freedom because Assyria is creeping up on us. But, oh, for unto us a child is born and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called. Verse 8, the Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. So they're in bad shape, and God has just promised he'll deliver them. What's their response? How come they don't get delivered? Because the first thing is, they are arrogant, and in their pride, they say, we can fix it. I mean, do you not hear every campaign promise you've ever heard from any politician of any party there in verse 10? The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. We will fix it. We will bring it back and make it better. And he says, and they've done this in pride and arrogance of heart. We can do this ourselves. We can make it better. Therefore the Lord raises against them adversaries from Razin and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east, the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. And so again, it brings God's judgment, not God's judgment in that he supernaturally brings something to bear, just means that he lets nature take its course. He says, all right, you're going to do it your own way? See how that works for you. It's not going to work because God brings order, we bring chaos, so when he wants to judge us, he just lets us bring chaos and we destroy ourselves. That's his judgment, is letting us have our way. And that's what he does here. He just backs off, says, all right, these other powers are going to come take you out. Second half of verse 12, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is not stretched out. Meaning that as these things happen, it doesn't change things so that they can be restored. 
You're going to hear that phrase repeated three times. Yet, verse 13, yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So they don't, even though this doesn't work, they don't turn for him. 14 through 16. So the Lord cut off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder, an honorable man. And the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. So then he says, well, the problem is, is they've got a failure of their human leaders. Their prophets, their elders, their prophets, their prophets prophesy falsely, their leaders are leading them astray. They are not being helped by their leaders, and so everybody's in trouble. Because of that, verse 17, therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on the widows, on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is not stretched out. That's the refrain again. For, a, for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. So it says this wickedness is like a fire. And you notice it says the Lord, it says the Lord allows this, the Lord brings this. Again, the Lord is not causing the wickedness. It means he is not stopping it. He is allowing the disorder to reign. This is how God judges. He says, all right, have it your way. See how that works for you. That's your judgment. We, as parents, we call that, you made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. Or at camp, we have it on make your sandwich day. You made your sandwich, now you have to eat it. Do you understand that? Because teenagers will go, ooh, I'll make a really disgusting sandwich. <laughs> I go, now eat it. Oh, that's your judgment. Right? I didn't make a bad sandwich for you, but you have to eat what you made. That's God's judgment on us, and that's what happens here. Wickedness is like a fire consuming everyone. And then, that last verse, end of 20, each of them, I'm sorry, end of 19, no man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but it's still are hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. And then the refrain, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. And so then he ends with, and so the people are consuming each other. So it starts with wickedness is consuming them, and in their wickedness, they're consuming each other. Last week, if you were here or watched last week, we talked about that a drowning person will try to, if you try to rescue a drowning person, they'll try to drown you because they're so desperately trying to save themselves that they'll grab hold of you and drown you too. That's what we do when we're desperate, when we're clarin, and it says there, they, they turn on each other. In trying to satisfy themselves and trying to feel better themselves, they turn on each other, and then it still doesn't satisfy, and pretty soon they're consuming themselves until they're just everybody's against everybody and everybody's devoured. In the New Testament, it says, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you consume one another. And that's the end of the passage. This is the opposite. So this entire passage is showing the contrast between the promise of God and the conduct of man. Because the passage began with, God is going to give you wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government will just continue to increase. There'll be no end to the peace and the blessing. Ah! And it says, and this is what you've got. This is what you guys do. And that's why we need the, both parts of the story. And this is the whole story of the Bible. It's the whole story of creation. It's the whole story of human history. 
where God has said, here, this is what I want to give you. And we go, you know what? This is what we're going to do. And that's why, and there are people who look at our world today and go, I have a hard time believing in God when you look at the world today. And I'm like, well, then read the Bible because it explains why we have the world today. And that God offered us one world, and this is the world we decided we wanted to build for ourselves. Because we arrogantly said, well, it was this way, but I'll make it this way. And it was this way, and I'll make it this way. And we just tear each other apart. So what do we learn from this? What does it mean for us? What is the application for us? The first is that peace cannot be achieved by doing things our way. We think we need to try harder, fight harder, work more. Regardless of what your political affiliation is, the people who are trying to get you to vote for them, whether it's Democratic people or Republican people, regardless of where what you're consuming. In both cases, what are you being told? We are the only ones who can fix it. It's broken and it's, you need to, they won't, we can. We, the bricks have fallen down. We will rebuild them with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, they cut them down. We will replace them with cedars. That is the promise. Both sides. We will restore the greatness or we will build back better, whichever way you want to go. And of course, this has been working so well that that is why we are just experiencing so much peace and harmony now. Oh, it just blows you away, right? Just all the love. Well, no, because, well, because they, so we're going to, so what, well, why haven't we achieved it? Because we haven't tried hard enough. We haven't fought hard enough. So we need to fight harder and fight more and try harder and work more. And we just gear up and gear up and gear up. And what is, what is happening? Tearing apart. Increasing, increasing until churches now are being torn apart because you ain't fighting hard enough. You need to get in there and come on, Fight! We tear apart, and families are being separated. There are people who won't even have Thanksgiving together, because why? We disagree on how we have to fight. But we all agree we got to fight. Why? Because it doesn't matter which side. The way of, human, the way of humankind and the way of the, the, the devil is to tear apart. And that's what we're seeing. And the Prince of Peace works a different way. The Prince of Peace works a different way. And that is why when the Prince of Peace showed up, they didn't recognize him. And even the people who did recognize him, think about what happened. They were excited. Messiah has come. We got our guy. And he's, what is he going to do? He's going to fight for us. And Rome is toast. <laughs> and then Jesus started not fighting. And he didn't start picking fights with Rome, and they're like, well, wait, 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 what's going on here? Oh, well, he's just, he's just starting slow. But even the people who knew who he was, John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. John got it, and yet what does John write from prison? Uh, so uh, Jesus, um, just asking, are you the guy, or should we be looking for someone else? John, why? You, you told your own followers to follow this guy, why are you now asking him if he's the guy? Well, because you're not doing it what I thought you were going to do. And his disciples kept thinking, well, at some point, 
That's why when he kept saying, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And they're like, <laughs> good one. Because <laughs> we know that's not what happens. We know what happens. The Jewish belief of the time was when Messiah came, he would lead a climactic battle of forces of good and evil and be victorious. In fact, this is just my theory. So it's, this is just a theory. It's just my theory. You say, I think it's a dumb theory. I told you that already. My theory, okay? But I think Judas, what motivated Judas? My guess because Judas had seen the power of Jesus. He'd spent time with him for three years. Now, Judas had his own system going all the time. Judas was kind of, you know, he was dipping into the funds, campaign funds, and all this stuff. But Judas had seen the power of Messiah. But Jesus keeps not picking a fight with Rome. And I think that Judas's motivation, beyond money, money too, but was to provoke it. To say, all right, well, Jesus kind of He's tiptoeing around Rome, so we'll, we'll force the issue. They arrest him. He'll have to deal with it. And Jesus allows himself to be arrested and doesn't fight. He doesn't even defend himself. And Judas is broken and goes out and hangs himself. That we know. And I think it's because it didn't work. And we know that after Jesus died, that his own disciples who had said, in you we have the words of eternal life, you are Messiah. And yet when he encounters them and they don't know it's him because they think he's still dead, and he says, hey guys, so where are you going? What's going on? They say, where have you been? There was this guy. And we thought he was the guy. But then they killed him. Now we don't know what. Why? Because he didn't do it the way they thought he was going to do it. Why? Because the Prince of Peace does it his way. And the Prince of Peace does it not our way. And his way wasn't to take on Rome and to fight. It was to defeat all his enemies by dying for them. Because his goal is what? To bring together. Which is why he's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. That's why he goes after, who does he make the primary proponent of his new church? Saul, who was going around killing Christians, says, you know what? I'm going to take you and show the power of what I can do. You kill people, now you're going to bring life. I'm going to bring people together through you. The ministry of reconciliation, the Bible says. And that's what we need to remember, that the Prince of Peace has his own way of doing things. What does the world need? We do not need, the world does not need the Prince's Principles. The Prince of Peace's principles. Pick up, pick up, pick up, puppet. Right there it goes. You just have to get that out. We don't need his principles. We need him. And a lot of times we think we need his principles. The thing is that the principles of the Prince of Peace, they are kind of universal because they're just good principles. They are good principles. And if you just want his principles, you can get them from a lot of different religions. His principle, and that's why people get confused. Because if you just think about his principles, then people say, well, you know, a lot of the religions are basically the same. Principle-wise, yes! If you want to be a really devout Buddhist, you'll probably be a fairly nice person. Mormon, pretty nice person. Because the principles are the same. What's different? The person. 
And the world needs the person of Jesus Christ, not his principles. Now, if you get the person, the principles come along. But we need him. We do not need to try to emulate him as far as I'm going to try to be a pale copy of him because you all know how well that works. Think about it. If just trying to imitate Jesus and just be sort of like him, if that worked, well, then there would be no such word as church conflict. We probably have to retire the word Baptist, right? Why? Because the principles aren't enough. The principles don't change our tendency that is described in verses 8 through 21. where we end up devouring each other and picking at each other and fighting with each other because the whole story of human history is we divide. And the Prince of Peace comes and says, I'm not going to divide. I'm going to bring you together. And how am I going to do it? I'm going to die for you. And the world needs him. And he needs, the world needs him in us. Not our war with his principles. And that's where a lot of times the church is getting it wrong because we're going to war on his principles. Now, we have UMF students here. We're working hard to minister with them. And I realize now that I forgot one of the announcements because we want to really help them connect with their campus. One of the things they've been struggling with, and some of you have seen him, the gentleman who stands on the side of the road, on the sidewalk, and yells at the college students, the good news, you're going to hell! Oddly enough, people don't like being yelled at. Who knew? You say, well, people need to hear that. It is a true statement. All of us without Jesus will be lost. That's true. But what do they need? What is going to save them? Better principles? Acting better? Pharisees had that. The Pharisees did the right thing. If we passed all the laws tomorrow that perfectly mirrored biblical behavior so that biblical behavior was mandated for our country, we'd have such a great country that was still not saved. Because good behavior doesn't save you. If it did, the Pharisees would have been like way ahead of the game and sort of totally outside the kingdom. Because they got the principles down, but they didn't know the prince. They didn't know Jesus. In fact, they were so invested in the kingdom, their understanding of the kingdom, that they didn't recognize the king and killed him. Which is why I wanted to sing his story, He is Lord because they didn't recognize him. And that's what we do. We fight with the principles and we tear people apart. Which is not the work of God. A son has been given. So what is our choice? We can tear apart and join the fire. We can, we're going to fight for principles no matter who gets hurt. I was just listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if you listen to that podcast. It's about a mega church in Seattle and a very aggressive pastor. And one of the things that he said as he was building that church on the mission 
is he said, you know what? There's a pile of bodies behind our bus. And Lord willing, that pile will become a mountain. In other words, we don't care who gets hurt as long as we do the mission of God. That is not the way of the Prince of Peace. Or we can trust and proclaim the Prince of Peace. How did the Prince of Peace do it? Not our way. He came and he died. He came and surrendered. He came and laid down his life. And in doing that, and that's why I wanted to sing the songs we did. Started with Days of Elijah, God's Coming. And then we sang Finally Free. Because that's the promise of one through seven. God will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, what does the Bible say? You are free indeed. So do I have to fight for that? No. I don't have to fight for that. I don't have to fight for peace. I don't have to fight for freedom. It's been gifted to me already. Well, what of the government? What government? The government's on his shoulders. They cannot hurt my freedom. The worst they can do is let me experience the rest of it. I don't have to fight him. I need to proclaim the Prince of Peace. Shatter at me, shall I get it in your O King? Whatever you do to us today, we are in God's hands. Whatever happens, we're in God's hands. Let us tell you about our God. Let us proclaim the Prince of Peace. And our society will notice that's weird. We will be different from all the angry voices tearing apart. But it's not because of the principle, it's because of the person. Jesus Christ died for me. I was wrong, he was right. And he laid down his life to forgive me. He died on a cross and he rose again because he loved me. And now every day, what do I do? I try to remember that my life is no longer mine, it's his. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. I don't just live a nicer life by biblical principle. That don't cut it. I need to be dead and let God's life be my life now. And I'll tell you, if you embrace that, oh, it's going to be hard work. Because I'm preaching this this morning. Isn't this noble? Isn't this great? And then we're, I'm sticking around for lunch, so I'll, I'll stay on good mode for an extra hour. And then I'm going to get in my car and be tired and done. And myself will reassert itself. And if you call at 3 o'clock, I'll be like, mm, why are they calling me? I've done enough. I need rest. Is that a true statement? Yes. But what is my natural tendency immediately going to be? I need to protect myself. And my life will begin to supersede Jesus's in my existence. And I have to say, oh, Lord, it is, it is not unwise to care for myself. But my tendency is to self selfishness. And I tend to fight for me. And that is not your life, that's mine. If anyone comes after me, Jesus said, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Do it my way. Let's pray. Father, we live in, in such strenuous times. And everyone seems like they're angry and against. And everyone thinks they're right. And everybody thinks they can fix it. Or their guy or girl can fix it. 
and we divide ourselves into camps, and we devour one another, and we devour one thing, and we're still not satisfied, so we've got to devour something else, and we always need another enemy. And the temperature rises, and the fire blazes, and we have a lot of burned people right now, and we have a lot of angry people. We get on social media, and it's flames, and there is no peace. Lord, you are different. You came into this world, emptied of your glory, to walk on earth in ridicule and shame. A servant, a sacrifice. And by your death, your loss became our gain. Humbled and rejected, beaten and despised. Lord, may we remember to follow you as the person, not just the principles. To each day yield ourselves to you, the, the God of the universe, who became one of us and died for each of us. You know us by name. You know the number of hairs on our head. And you loved us all so much that you were willing to give up even the perks and privileges and freedoms of Godhood so that we might be forgiven. May that be the picture that we show the world. May they see you, not our cheap imitations of you. May they see us struggle to lay down our lives and to proclaim you, the Prince of Peace, the only one who's going to fix this. May the fruit of your spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control be evident in our lives, whether online or at the store, around the Thanksgiving table, at work, in the town office, Wherever we go, may the fruit of your life living out through us be unmistakable. That our light will so shine before men that they'll see that good and give you glory. And that our friends and neighbors and relatives and enemies will have an opportunity to turn away from the fire and destruction and division to be united with you and with us. Reconciled because of your shed blood on the cross for our sins. May that be what defines us as a church. May we be known for our care for one another, for our neighbor, and for our enemies. By this, may all men know that we are your disciples, that we love one another. May we be agents of peace. Father, work with us. This is hard. We struggle. I struggle. May we surrender to you each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing, I want to bring up one thing, kind of a for next week. Because you might be, want to push back on this. Say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But aren't we supposed to stand up for right? And when we stand up for right, aren't, we, aren't people going to be against it? Not, isn't the world against right? Yeah. So we're going to look next week, we're going to look at no peace on earth. Because Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What does it mean? Is, is God contradicting himself? 
What does it mean that God said, I did, when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword? How does that fit into everything we've just talked about? Does it negate it? No, is the quick answer. But come next week, and we're going to look at why did Jesus say that peace wouldn't be the immediate result? And we're going to see how that fits into what God is saying all through that. So I hope you'll come next week uh, as we continue to discuss